Hey guys, you're listening to The Furrow, a podcast for Catholic men by Catholic men. On today's show, we kick off a brand new series we're calling The Art of Living, and we discuss the need for restoring an attitude of reverence in our culture. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Furrow. I'm your host, Brandon Duncan, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Cameron Davis and Father Robert McTeague. Gentlemen, I know it's been a few weeks since we last recorded. So how are, you, how are things going in your neck of the woods? Oh my goodness, it has been a full time. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've relocated, and the story of that relocation, if we had time, would borrow from elements of the book of Exodus, the book of Job, and the book of Tobit. It's another story for another time. And maybe Revelation too, right? (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Something with the abyss. Uh, And all glory and honor to God. I I started a new job on Monday. I became the full-time host and producer of a radio program called The Catholic Current, uh, a talk show of bringing timely truths to uh, time, excuse me, uh, timeless truths to timely topics. And that's on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network. So if you would go to the stationofthecross.com, you'll find that I'm there Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. End of uh, shameless self-promotion. <laughs> I can't say that my the past few weeks have been nearly as exciting as Father Matigues. However, I'm excited to be back. Yes. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you faithful gentlemen to spread the gospel and Fight what the devil is trying to destroy, which is true, authentic manhood. So, amen, amen to that. And we'll also include a link to Father's uh, to Father's radio show um, in the description part of the podcast once uh, it's out. So, but uh, so anyway, that's fantastic, guys. And, and of course, on, on my end, uh, we're doing we're doing families doing really well. Kids are back in school, so the year is uh, is winding up. So, um, but anyways, so guys. Recently, I have to say, I, I mustered up the courage to dive headlong into reading the works of renowned philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand. Now, for those of us, or for, rather, for those of our listeners who've never heard of him and are unfamiliar with his work, I'll quickly give you kind of the cliff notes summary. Now, for those of you who don't know Dietrich von Hildebrand, he was one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. And during World War II, he was known as one of the most outspoken voices against Nazism and communism, which he recounts, actually, those experiences against the Nazis in his book, My Battle Against Hitler. Now, as a philosopher, he was known for his works in ethics, aesthetics, social philosophy, and philosophy of religion. Now, although he was a convert to Catholicism, his writings had a tremendous impact on the thought and life of the church. And I believe that his writings are something that we ought to revisit as a society, but also as part of our formation as Catholic men. And I want to say something here on the side here, Father. I, re- I remember asking, uh, asking you in a text, uh, Father, when I started reading the book, I was sitting in a restaurant and I text you. And the first thing, because I, I was, I was hit. Uh, it was almost like a light bulb went off when reading the first two pages as I started. And I asked you, where have all the men like Hildebrand gone? And I recall your reply and you simply said, the culture has choked them out. Yes, sadly, sadly. And that's why you know, the bi- biographical study written by his, his, uh, his wife, Alice von Hildebrand, the title is very suggestive. She called it 
the soul of a lion. Mm, that's right. Think about that. That's right. You know, and thankfully, you know, there is actually a group of scholars today who are actually working to resurrect and they're republishing Hildebrand's works through an organization, you know, aptly, you know, perfectly called the Hildebrand Project, which has received the blessing of his wife, Alice, who, God bless her, is currently in her 90s. But I tell you what, she's still smart as a whip. Um, now, what I'd like to do in these next episodes is entertain some discussions around a short book called The Art of Living. Now, the book is a compilation of radio lectures that Hildebrand gave in Germany sometime in the 1930s. Now, in each lecture, Hildebrand, he addresses specific themes or attitudes that he believes are necessary for all men to possess in order that we might live a morally upright life. And so the first theme or the attitude that he addresses in this book is reverence. And, 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 and rightly so. In this opening chapter, Hildebrand defines reverence as, and I'm quoting, the attitude that can be designated as the mother of all moral life, end quote. Now, what I believe Hildebrand is ultimately saying here, and correct me if I'm wrong in my reading of this, is that the key to the moral life really has to do with our vision. In other words, the man who possesses reverence is one who acknowledges things as they are, who, as Hildebrand says, sees the dignity and nobility of all life. You know, that persons are, th- are persons or things um, don't merely exist, but that each has a purpose and a moral worth that is placed in it by a source outside of itself. In other words, it cannot give worth to itself. And namely, that source we call God. So if we're to think of reverence from Hildebrand's perspective, which we're going to be diving into here in this conversation, this is just a, we're just wetting our toes here. You know, I could see it's easy to see how society's perception of all being and life really has shifted from an appreciation for to an impersonal transactional approach where we think of things and especially people as means to ends instead of ends in themselves. Now, guys, where have we gone wrong here? And honestly, where do we begin to pick up the pieces? Well, you know, you guys, we're not using uh, video, so you can't see me putting on my professor philosophy hat. Right? Now. I, I knew but, you would. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to do that for uh, for a moment or two, if, if, you, if you'd indulge me. Bring it on. Uh, uh, the, the history of, of human thought, really, since the time of the Greeks, has been what I would call a, a progressive depersonalization of both mm. the human and the divine. I mean, we started out with uh, with theism. You know, uh, God is real and God is personal and has intellect and will and is intimately involved in his creation. And the pagans of the West pointed at it. And of course, the, the Jews and ultimately the, the Christians got it right in, in its fullness. And then it be, that agreement begins to break down and you go from deism, God is real, but God is not personal. God is the blind watchmaker who designed the watch, made mm. the parts, put the parts together, wound it up, and then let it go. No. Then you had uh, naturalism, where there's no reference to supernatural causes uh, anymore. God is out of the picture, and, and man is, is at the, the top of the hierarchy of being, if you will. Eventually, naturalism 
falls into a, a materialism. Man is just one of the things in the world. It's just stuff that you can manipulate with tools and science. Mm. Excuse me, science and, and and the human will. Well, where where does that lead us? Well, naturalism. You know, man is at the top of of the pyramid. He's the top of the food chain. He's the smartest guy in the room, and he's smart enough and good enough and wise enough to make everything work for human purposes. And then comes World War One, the first big mechanized war. Uh, and then all that surety of human purpose and human wisdom all by itself can inevitably lead only to progress and happily ever after. Well, you end up with a charnel pit. And then we didn't learn our lesson and we ended up with another charnel pit with World War II. But in the interwar time, the, the nihilists uh, following Friedrich Nietzsche, who talked about dancing over the abyss, uh, he said, see, God's dead. We've killed him. We just look into the nothingness. Let's have a party. Mm. Well, that's, that's unbearable. You know, but Nietzsche was crazy. He was brilliant, but at least he was honest. He said, that's right. There is absolutely nothing of reality, value, or importance. There's only the sheer human will to be exercised without limit. Well, you know, those guys with the uniforms and the spiffy armbands in Germany thought that Nietzsche was a really swell guy. Yeah. You know how well that ended. Well, but so, so nihilism becomes unbearable, but they don't want to go backwards to God because then you'd have to be accountable for your actions. And if you don't believe in the mercy of God, that prospect is unbearable. So here come the existentialists. Real short, the existentialists say, look, well, of course life is absurd and meaningless but at least you can shake your fist against the darkness. And then the darkness kills you anyway. So aren't, aren't you great? You, you made a futile gesture right before you were eaten by the abyss. Well, that's not very compelling. And so uh, here comes postmodernism as another way of whistling past the, the cemetery. Because you don't want to go back to theism because you don't want to have to face God for your sins. Hmm. Uh, modernism and naturalism almost got everybody killed. Uh, nihilism is unbearable. Existentialism is futile. So here comes postmodernism. And that's in, embodied in Heath Ledger's depiction of the Joker in the Batman movies. What's exactly. the cry? Why so serious? Mm. <laughs> there is nothing serious. The, the, the goal of the postmodernist is, is to be uh, whimsical and ironic and detached and to Twitter and laugh at people mm. who believe in things like reality and science and systems and, and purpose and goals and, and nature uh, and so on. Uh, but at the heart of it is uh, everything is really dead and subject to manipulation to divert ourselves and pleasure ourselves until it finally comes to an end. Because the time we're living in now, it's just an episode between two oblivions. And what, what von Hildebrand was saying I'm going to paraphrase here. He was calling for a re-enchantment mm. of reality. I think he was trying to do in prose what Tolkien was trying to do in verse, in story, to reestablish that sense of wonder. Uh, mm. Aquinas said that wonder is uh, comes from being amazed because you cannot see the whole. Therefore, God cannot be amazed. Wow. And, and I think that's what von Hildenbrandt is calling for in reverence is uh, 
the, the ability to, to be, to see things as they are, to see that God is God and we're not, and to wonder at it all. And until we find a way of reacquiring, retrieving, recovering that sense of wonder, there's nothing but dismal, flat matter. Mm, I'm going to, uh, that was really, really good, Father Mancy. So I'm going to hope you indulge me. I'm going to put on uh, my philosophy student hat <laughs> and I'm hit my head up against the wall because that was a lot. But I think that what was really cool, I do like your comment about the, that wonder that they all tried to capture. But I think the heart of it to the whole postmodernism that you brought up is that at some point, things no longer have value unless I place value upon it. Yes. That's the reason why all these things are dead now mm-hmm. is that we live in a world where, well, I only can value what I think is valuable. Right. Which that's not the case at all. It's, it's almost as if reverence has now been turned on its face. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes it's said as, well, you're reverent because you make this thing special. Right. Mm. But we are reverent because this thing already has value that we need to acknowledge. Right. Now, as I was reading this, the thing that kept going through my mind is that this is nothing but humility mm. in its truest sense. Yes. Recognizing that I am beneath all of these other things and you, because you're a human, you're a person. And even as Peter Kreef said in his book, The God That Loves You, everything turned itself back to its creator. Right. Mm. And it's acknowledging that simple truth that all of those things exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Really, that's Aquinas' definition of humility is not not gauging yourself greater than you are or lesser than you are, but as you are. Right. right. It, <laughs> you it's know? rooted in telling the truth. I mean, if if Tiger Woods says he's a lousy golfer, he's not humble. He's just a bad no. player. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Cheetah Woods, right? <laughs> you know, and and that's the thing too. I mean, you talk about the the, the nihilist uh, view, especially of Nietzsche, which is very much pervasive in our culture today, and it's in the sort of in the consumerist culture we live in, where human where human interaction really, as I said, is is treated as merely transactional. You know, there's real no depth, no real depth in our relationships, or even even in conversations today, and especially speaking to some of our young people, and and, and you know, Father, probably even in uh, in the in the classroom speaking to some of our uh, our, our, um, our, our college students in the classroom, you know, but at the same time, you know, and we really struggle with appreciating this, even the simplest things in life, you know, whether that's, you know, the, the laughter of a baby, mm-hmm. you know, the soothing sounds of a creek, you know, the right. loving, the loving glance of one's spouse, right. you know, it's, um, it's incredible. It, it really is incredible uh, to see where, you know, where we, where we've, come from and where, where we're heading and it doesn't look promising but you know it's no. it's amazing no, it to me though that 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 Hildebrand is saying these things in the 1930s right. and yet we see how relevant they are today oh oh absolutely let, let me let me interject just for a second your, your reference to human interaction as merely transactional well look at the hookup culture yeah uh, exactly look, look at tinder uh, look at the abortion industry, and it is an yep. industry, and also look at the people who can order a child on demand. Ugh. You know, I, I, you know, I want my gamete donors to be over five foot ten and to have this SAT score and this IQ score and green eyes and play the guitars, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We've reduced everything to objects uh, of will, mm. and, and there, there's no sense of of mystery anymore. You know. Uh, former communist Whitaker Chambers, you know, writing about his conversion experience, he said what won him over was looking at the ear of his infant daughter. 
Mm. It's something wow. that simple, that complex, and that beautiful just could not happen by accident, mm. uh, all by itself. Uh, but you know, when when we think of human encounters as merely transactional, you know, you're either to be used or consumed or to be gotten out of the way because you want my stuff. Right. And, and you know, I mean, look at you. Just go to Google and, and type in uh, Walmart video Black Friday. You see people beating the stuffings out of each other, junk they don't need and can't afford. Right. It's not, that's, that is an expression of the inevitable manic of boredom that Mm. comes from consumerism uh, and that comes from a a lack of, of reverence, a lack of wonder, a lack of awe. You know, these are not people who say with the psalmist, behold, Lord, for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. These are people who've never read Gerard Manley Hopkins talking about the world being charged with the grandeur of God. I mean, Hopkins said, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his. To hmm. the Father, through the features of men's faces. We're not dealing with anything new. We're dealing with something perennial. And, and with you, Brandon, I agree, it's disturbing that uh, what von Hildebrand was naming in the 30s, actually, he was sounding the alarm about the Nazis in the 20s. Right. Uh, which amazes me. Uh, but what he was announcing 80, 90 years ago, we're wrestling with now. But I, I, I think in some ways we're, we're facing fiercer opposition with a weaker set of tools. Mm. There, <laughs> there was at least a moral consensus in the time of, of von Hildebrand where there isn't one today. And I think von Hildebrand had an access to an array of spiritual liturgical resources that somehow we've misplaced in recent decades. Mm. You know, and, and of course, we don't have figures like Hitler that we're having to fit, deal with today, but we are, I think, facing really one of our most form- formidable enemies, uh, I have to say, in the culture, which is really our own indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really that's ultimately what, what leads, what leads to what exactly you're talking about, which actually leads me to another point, you know, in this chapter where Hildebrand, he actually addresses the two types of irreverent men. And he wants to juxtapose what, what a reverent man is and what irreverent men look like. And he, he, he proposes two types. The first he says really is the kind of man who approaches life with an aura of pride. You know, he's kind of the know-it-all and the kind of man who thinks he he penetrates everything at first sight. And I think because of this myopic view of life, that this kind of man finds it difficult to really plumb the depths of the mysteries of life, as you said, Father, exactly. And and secondly, the second kind of man is the who lacks reverence is the concupiscent man. Uh, and he's really the one who whose interests are limited to whether he finds something agreeable to him or not, whether it can be of any use to him or not. In other words, every person or thing is a means to his selfish end. And, you know, although Hildebrand is writing this decades ago, could we say honestly that these are accurate descriptions of the, of modern man? I, I think so. Oh, my and, goodness. And, yes, and, absolutely. And, and if so... What is the alternative, and how do we get there? Oh, I think those those are, are two questions. Let's, let's t- take this in order. Let's take the the proud know it all man, right? Uh, especially the, the the reduction is what I call the reductionist. Roger Scruton, quoting someone whom I don't remember, 
uh, talked about this approach of nothing buttery. You know, you know, man is nothing but an animal. Man is nothing mm. but biology. Or I would say, right. you know, man is nothing but a bag of nerve endings and appetites waiting to be tickled and fed. And babies are just pooping meat sacks that we can get rid of because they're expensive and in the way. And mm. on, on and on it goes. And, you know, and there's, there's an intellectual pride to that too. Well, everyone knows that, uh, you know, people who are religious are just maladaptive and, and obsessed with their self-esteem. Uh, and, and everyone knows that, uh, you know, it's the patriarchy and white privilege is holding everyone else back. Et of course. Et there, there's, you know, I, I have the theory that the one simple theory that explains everything, and that's why I stopped thinking. Well, <laughs> that that's useless. And the second who, who lacks reverence is, is the concupiscent man. Uh, in Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about the crafty man and how he's different from the man of vice or the vicious man. Well, I had explained mm. it to the student. The vicious man just wants to get drunk. The crafty man wants to get you drunk. Hmm. Right? Wow. I think, yeah, and I think this is this is where we are now. Uh, and then you know, C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man, talks about raising men without chess. You've got yes. men who are all up in, in, in their head. And mm. believe me, I'm not an anti-intellectual, not in the least. But those <laughs> who, who only look at things in terms of calculation and manipulation... And then there's there's the visceral man, the man who just thinks with 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 his, his gut and his groin. Mm. Now take that latter, the man who thinks with his gut and his groin, right? And he spends his time with you know Uber Eats and pornography. That transactional, flat, uh, literally superficial approach to human sexuality, right? Which progressively wow. uh, dehumanizes him. And then you ask, you know, what what's the alternative, and how do we get there? Well, the, the alternative has to be the world submitted to the kingship of Christ mm. across every dimension, across every dimension. And this is the gospel. This is the saving grace for everyone. Now, how do we get there? Reminds me of the joke of the guy who says, hey, I just built a perpetual motion machine. I've got all the parts except the little part that goes back and forth like this forever. Uh, <laughs> if I knew how to get us to where we needed to go and I could say in a pithy way we'd all be really famous and I remember you guys fondly when I'm rich uh, I'm, <laughs> I I'm hope not, so I, I'm, I'm not there yet but it has to involve submitting to Christ and retrieving the best traditions of the church he founded Amen okay, I, I want to kind of go back to what you guys were saying there because I think it's just really great stuff. I think in terms of reverence, right? You know, I, I didn't catch this the first time I read it, but I see it now. So if you think about the guy that's the number one guy that lacks reverence, mm-hmm. he lacks the reverence of understanding the value that other things have intrinsically, mm-hmm. right? Then you look at the number two guy and he doesn't see the own value that he has in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. He doesn't revere himself right. and kind of what you're talking about. He doesn't see himself as he actually is. Right. And so the, to be, get beyond that is to understand, you know, in this relativistic world that we're in, which says, well, you can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want. However, you can't infringe upon me, which those two men have a very sick sense of relativism. And that's what's hurting them sure. is understanding that because there are things that exist beyond my control mm-hmm. that... Mm. They have value, and I have to order myself in that way. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's submitting to the kingship of Christ. 
But what does that mean? It means I truly have to love. I have to seek and will the good of the other. Why? Because me emptying myself, which Christ says is the greatest gift, me emptying myself for the sake of another is revering the truth that exists within them. If I keep it purely within myself, I become number one and I become number two. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a way to steal the thunder of the show at the end of the show, Cameron. But, <laughs> but that's, that's exactly that. But see, that's, that's exactly that your preview of the thunder. That's right. That's right. That's right. It was a little bit of a little lightning in the distance. I was no. the lightning before the thunder. That's right. That's right. That's right. But no, Cameron, you're, you're exactly right. And father, you are spot on. And so, and, I, and, and this is exactly where I think Hildebrand is going because mm-hmm. as he says, you know, the first, um, the reverence for all beings on the natural level ultimately flows over to our reverence for the supernatural mm-hmm. and it plays a, a significant role in how we reverence and worship God, mm-hmm. you know, and how, and in what ways, you know, how really, how and in what ways can reverence or the lack thereof affect our daily worship of God and our spiritual life? I, I can think of a number of ways, but you know, and, and, you know, sometimes I, g- I get some flack from friends and, and stuff, and, but this is a kind of, uh, where I have to say that this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy the extraordinary form of the mass. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because of, of, of really the reverence that is ultimately the solemnity that's built into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that, that's created by, by the priest. It's not something that's created by the people. It's something that is just organically in there that, that either, either you conform to it or you don't. You it's, know, it's, it's, it's clearly not something designed by a committee. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, the, the old joke that, you know, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is not something c- cobbled together. You know, uh, you know, read, uh, you know, Father Louis Boyer, who, who was a convert mm, and was yes. very influential in the liturgical documents of the council, uh, read his memoirs, which were recently translated in, into English. And he says, you know why I don't use Eucharistic number two as a prayer, as a priest? Said, because I wrote it. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Wow. Well, mm. let, let's think about that. And I'm going to make a, a plug for a reading list for you guys. And, and Brandon, I'm going to make more work for you by asking you to, to put, when we when this goes up on the website, here are some books that our friends need to read. Joseph uh, Pieper wrote a book about oh, yes. worship called in, Th- in Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity. Oh, yeah. Start, yeah, start with that. Uh, and then uh, the great Peter Kwasniewski, his books, uh, uh, Noble Beauty, Transcendent Holiness, and then his book, Resurgent in the Midst of Crisis, absolute must-reads if you want to talk intelligently about, about liturgy. Uh, look, ultimately, reality is, is sacramental and life is liturgical. Mm. And we are oriented, this goes back to St. Ignatius, to the praise, reverence, and service of God. Let's focus on, on that notion of, of reverence for, for just a moment. Reverence isn't, I'm feeling pious today. I think <laughs> I'll do something about it. No, reverence and piety are fundamentally matters of justice mm. rooted in truth. The only thing that must exist is God. Everything else is bonus. Yeah, if I give you a birthday gift, if I give you a cigar for your birthday, you have to exist in order for me to give you the gift. So it's a relative gift. 
Right. To receive the act of existence from God, you didn't exist before you received the gift. So existence is an absolute gift, which, Mm. you know, by definition, you could not possibly have earned. So worship is acknowledging in awe and wonder and humility and justice that I've been given an incommensurable gift. And then Mm. when I screwed it up through sin, it got redeemed at a horrific cost to God, and then elevated in a way that no one could have guessed by by the work of of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's so different from, hi, everybody, welcome to our celebration. Let's set the table and talk about us and all of our (laughs) us-ness. Whatever that is, that cannot be Christian worship. And and we we have to acknowledge that. And I believe that one of the things that drives man out of the church is frivolous worship. I mean, you compare it to the uh, the precision drill team and the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns. Oh, yeah. It says, hi, everybody. I'm Lieutenant Fred. How are you all doing today? Why don't you greet everyone? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It doesn't happen, right? Yeah, And why right. is it that even if you have no idea what's going on, you know for sure something important is going on, mm. you dare not screw it up. Mm. Right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a... We, as the lay faithful, minus you, Father, since you're a priest, right, is that we have to remind ourselves what actually is occurring at that great mystery that is the Mass. Right. You know, I, I forget who said it. They said if we actually truly understood what happened at, at Mass, mm. yeah. the pews would be filled to the absolute brim. If we actually knew, it, regardless of the form that you attend, if you knew what was happening at that sacrificial table, See, that, that, you that's, would never want to leave. That, that's from Annie Diller. He said, if we really understood what was going on and we believed it, we wouldn't tolerate uh, people handing us vapid hymnals as we walked into the church. We would ask the ushers to lash us to our pews and hand out crash helmets and life preservers because <laughs> wow. we were invoking the living God. He said, but instead... We're like little kids uh, a Christmas morning playing with the chemistry set under the Christmas tree, having no idea of the powers we're invoking. Wow. So it, for, for real reverence, we, uh, I said th- th- there has to be a re-enchantment uh, of life. And that's not an act of will. It's an act of discovery. When, when I was a new priest, I was uh, working at a, at a university and the, uh, you know, we'd have mass on Sundays and you have the bulletin. And at the bottom of the bulletin, there'd be some notices and there'd always be an exhortation. It's time to make some meaning. Hmm. You know, if we're making meaning, we're postmodernists. It's kind of odd to do at an ancient rite of worship, isn't it? We don't <laughs> make meaning in this case. We, we discover it. It's not that I invest the altar of the cross with meaning. It's there and I discover it. And the first response has to be wonder. You know, Aquinas said, the philosopher may be likened unto the poet in this way. Both are concerned with the marvelous. <laughs> and, 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 and that comes through silence and stillness and wonder and a contact with nature and a contact with grace. And that means we have to stop playing our games of every sort and, and attend to what's important. Yeah, that takes it back to the episode we did with Steve Bercone and the comment that he made that, you know, we've lost this ability to understand what is truly beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it used to be a day where you had holy images all over your house. And when the, that's what you saw is truly beautiful looking at the sacred heart and the immaculate heart. Mm-hmm. That That's true beauty. Mm-hmm. 
but yet, so much of that has been lost in this world. Even like the um, the one of the things he brought out um, was like Our Lady of the Leche, you know, the the mother breastfeeding the baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like you can't get more beautiful than that. Yet our society has covered her up because it makes us uncomfortable. We no longer can appreciate the true beauty and the value that exists in the image of the Blessed Mother feeding the Son of God. Right. Mm. right. right. You know, and this, and really, I think this is the perfect segue, really, and what we're, what we're getting at is kind of the, the little lightning that you introduced there earlier, Cameron, really, this is the thunder. I think it really brings to the final point of what, of what Hildebrand is really getting at is that it seems that reverence, that while reverence is the basis really for all moral conduct toward our fellow men and even ourselves, reverence precise, more precisely serves as the threshold for love. Mm-hmm. And I think, if you will, reverence really is the door to which we open ourselves to love. And love, love with a capital L. (laughs) Now, if you think back to the two kinds of irreverent men that we've just discussed, you know, these men have really ultimately closed themselves off from love or the real possibility of love having any lasting impact on their lives. And isn't that another definition of hell? Oh, (laughs) resolutely cut yourself off from love Mm. (laughs) to be self-contained and literally utterly unsatisfied Mm. that's hell that's right the only way to get away from hell is to begin to worship which is just to tell the truth and act accordingly and it's actually a wonderful truth a marvelous truth Mm. wow wow that's (laughs) you know and I, i think um you know really i think reverence is really the key attitude that really we're all called to uphold in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, you know, in our vocations, whether that be to marriage or the priesthood, you know, to our nation as citizens, and also for the respect of authority and the fulfillment of all our moral obligations, our duties as a whole. And I think really reverence enables us to live in preparation for a world that is coming, not simply for the here and now. And I think without an attitude of reverence, of right reverence, as Hildebrand says, no true love, no justice, no self-development, no purity, no truthfulness are possible. And I think, gentlemen, really in closing, what do you suppose we can do as Catholic men to cultivate in ourselves a more profound attitude of reverence, both personally, but also when it comes to our worship? I think we have to start by counting our blessings. Mm. And I mean that uh, quite literally. You know, when I was applying to become a Jesuit, I had to write a 15-page spiritual autobiography, and I was told to review my life and count my blessings. And I said, I'm a young man. I'm in my 20s. I'll I'll sit in my lazy boy chair and just review my (laughs) life for half an hour and count the blessings. How long can that take? Well, eight (laughs) hours later... I emerged from that meditation convinced I was the most blessed man who ever lived. (laughs) And recognizing that imposes certain rather happy obligations and certain rather grave obligations uh, also. So start by counting your blessings and realize that you don't deserve any of them. Amen. And And then say, all right, how can I prove to God that I'm grateful? Hmm. 
how can I prove to God that I'm grateful? That's, I think, the, the first step towards reverence and worship. Now, I can go on for hours about things oh, right. do liturgically, etc. But since we're wrapping up, I'll just leave it there. Start by counting your blessings and then ask, what an I in justice and gratitude ought to do now? Well, yeah, I recently took up the challenge of starting my day a little bit differently than I have been in the past. So, you know, I try to get up, crack it down five o'clock in the morning. And the very first thing I do is I go downstairs to my living room. I grab my Magnificat. I sit in front of my crucifix and my picture of the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I pray with the sole purpose of I need to start my day with God mm-hmm. because it's because of him I was able to wake up that morning. Mm-hmm. And then from that flows an act of service for my family, mm-hmm. whether it be simply cleaning up around the house or whatever it is, performing an act of service for my family. Because at the end of the day, that's why I get up, is to to render due justice to God and then to love my family and be Christ to my family. That's what that's what we're called to in Ephesians, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it ultimately comes back to your, your comment about the threshold, Brandon, mm-hmm. is that it's almost as if Reverence. If if we are irreverent, we have these super deep blackening glasses on. Mm-hmm. That when we look out into the world, we can't see anything because we're establishing it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, when we look in the mirror, we can't see ourselves. It's not until we take those glasses off that we see the world as it actually is. To allow that reverence to come in our lives by rendering justice to God in our prayer lives and rendering justice to our families as Christ did for the church. And then if we can do it there, similar to what Father McTeague said, is that it flows into if I'm reverent in this aspect of my life, then I'll be reverent in all aspects. And once we understand what's happening at that altar, going back in time to when Christ died on the cross, we will then be reverent for that moment Always, especially in front of the Blessed Sacrament, because he is there with us in person, body, blood, soul, and divinity. He's there with us to be with us. And if I was standing next to Jesus, I'd be a little awestruck by that, which gets right back to what you said, Father McTiggs. We need to have this sense of awe and wonder about who we are. Hmm. And if I, and if, yeah, no, absolutely, Cameron, you're, you really are an inspiration to me, brother. Um, and I think also I'd like to maybe even add just a few just before we, we close here, even some very mundane uh, examples here of ways that we can really cultivate reverence, even in our personal lives. I think really the, the first and foremost, I think we need to nurture our relationships, especially with our spouses, our children and the people that we are called to serve, but also performing acts of kindness and charity toward, let's say, a coworker that you normally wouldn't interact with, you know, acknowledging and not acknowledging the, the, their presence their existence, that they are a person made in the image and likeness of God, worthy of the same respect and dignity that you are. And also, I even think even something as simple as writing a letter, writing, writing a letter to a loved one, turn off the email, write a letter, put your heart and soul into that instead of through your fingertips. And, and do it by hand. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Lick it and stick it, people. Lick it and stick it. Exactly, and, and I'm, I'm literally, I'm literally saying like these are the the simplest things in life that we often, perhaps in the past, growing up, took for granted that we're we just don't do anymore. Um, 
you know, even even offering a compliment to someone, who, even if unmerited. Uh, and I think also too being more prudent about the way we speak of private matters. There's there's something about that that for me I think really kind of irks me sometimes is that nothing is sacred anymore. Uh, when we speak, there's, you know, in terms of, uh, of especially speaking in terms of civility and how we address one another and how we kind of can just talk about things very, uh, very, very blasé about the way we we speak about things uh, and, and really cultivating a reverence for um, for the people and, and a charity that uh, for the people that we're speaking to. But then also on the level of worship, I think also, um, you know, instead of really instead of rushing out the door once mass has ended, I think maybe sitting for a few minutes by yourself or with your family and offering prayers of Thanksgiving um, or reading Psalm 138 or 139, you know, the Psalms of Thanksgiving. And so all these things, all these things obviously are things that uh, that ultimately will point us in the right direction and help to sort of recalibrate our moral compass, if you will. And so what I'd like to do, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Cameron and Father. Gentlemen, as always, it's a pleasure to speak with you and to share in this time with you to reflect on the truth, goodness, and beauty of our Catholic faith. Thanks you know, be to God. It's a happy privilege, gentlemen. Amen. Yes, sir. Thank you. And I'd also, you know, I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. You know, if you've enjoyed this discussion, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. You know, you can find us on most, if not all, the major podcasting syndicates, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and a whole lot more. But also, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback on our show, we want to hear from you. So please send us an email at thefurrowpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. Again, thanks again. And we hope you'll tune in to our next episode. God bless you, everyone. 